0: Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. Our guest today is Rebecca Amos, here to share her recovery story. So excited for you to meet Rebecca. Rebecca is a 55-year-old woman who now finds joy and freedom in life after spending decades with an under-the-radar eating disorder. She resides in Southern California with her husband and enjoys travel, golf, skiing, napping, writing, and reading. She's writing a book, My Sweet Body, Memoirs of a Not-So-Daisied Life, hoping to touch those who have been affected by a long-term eating disorder. It's so great to have you here, Rebecca. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Oh, we're so glad to have you here. We're really looking forward to, to hearing your story. So, to start, can you share with us a bit about yourself and any factors that you think may have played a role in the development of your eating disorder?
1: Sure. I grew up in the Midwest, um, and I was the youngest of a very big family of six kids. And I think for me, I grew up in a household where there was a lot of objectification like for with women and and bodies and it was kind of more all about who we were, how we presented like on the outside. And you know, I kind of fell into this role of, of who I was supposed to be. And when I was in my early 20s, I actually took a a semester abroad and I lived in France for a while. And for some reason, going to France and living in France, that's when it started. And I can't tell you why it started then, except that it was a scary thing to go there, but I was also really excited about it. But it also helped me kind of stand apart from everyone in my program, which I don't really know why I wanted that. And when I look back on that, I realize how I just became more and more isolated. And so I think Also, as the youngest of six kids, I think that I wanted my parents to see me. Like, I wanted them to just be like, Are you okay? Are you, how are you doing? And what was funny is when I came back from living over there, nothing, there was no recognition. There was no like, Oh my God, Rebecca. And for me, I thought, you know, like I was just shrinking, just shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And it became something that, it became like this little safe zone, which is so ironic because it wasn't safe, you know, but it was my little hole. It was my little, like, I, I'm i looking inside my closet right now. Like, it was just a place for me to hide and thrive in sort of like a pseudo way. Obviously, it was a pseudo-thrive, a pseudo-comfort, a pseudo-safety, all that. Yeah. Really, so,
0: so many factors. I think it, it, it really illustrates the... A couple of things for me as I hear you speak about it, the intricacy of all of the factors that interplay for the development of any eating disorder versus sort of one thing. Sometimes people are like, well, why do I have this eating disorder? Why do they have this eating disorder? Like if we could just know the one thing, we could fix the one thing and then we'd all move on. And we know that eating disorders don't quite work that way. And I also, as you were describing, I was thinking back to the the time when you were in your 20s and were in in France and the our understanding of eating disorders at that time was abysmal. It really there there wasn't much of an understanding and I I remember that time in my life and and that time in my life having an eating disorder as well and having nobody understand anything. And thinking about all the research and all of the learning we've done over the last, you know, 30 some years that we've really changed our understanding of why eating disorders even happen and why they seem to happen to certain people or certain sort of people with certain predispositions. So I'm thinking about that as we talk. Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking about, as you, as you illustrated, there's so many factors and then eating disorders sort of can shift and change over time as people have them for a while. So I'm curious how yours shifted through the years, if it did at all. And, as you think about that, looking back, were there moments that you wish someone had intervened? Someone could have seen you in your in your pseudo safe space and come in and, and sort of tried to to help you to find a different kind of safety. Were those moments present for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when I look back on that time, the loneliness was so crushing. And I remember when I was coming back, you know from being in europe and i remember calling my mom and saying you know don't be alarmed but i've lost a lot of weight and she's like okay and when i got back she's like oh i don't i don't think you look any different and i just remember thinking are you kidding so i think at that point i was already starting to experience some of the depression and the anxiety and the loneliness and just the feeling of like who I wanted to be, I wanted to be in a different family. Like I wanted to be in a family where we talked and where people got me. So I think that was a moment where I wished that my family would have said, you need help. But I honestly, I don't know if I would have responded because I think too, it was, there was also this feeling almost superior, like I can do this and you can't, but my eating disorder It was only about a year ago, year and a half ago that I started realizing something was not right. So it has ebbed and flowed and it's kind of like peaked and valleyed through these decades. And I think it became such a way of how I lived my life that I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. It just became a part of who I was. It was just a thread. And it's like, you know, like I talk about how it was under the radar. I honestly don't think I could have gotten help until it started becoming above the surface, you know, and I had to see it coming above the surface. I I don't think anyone really could have gotten to me.
0: You know, it struck me when you were talking about the beginnings and going to France and having this big transition in life that we know that transitions are a risk time for people to develop an eating disorder and also a risk for your, your ebb and flow description is so beautiful that the transitions can also be a time that leads to a a, a flow from an ebb that makes things more present, that that worsens the eating disorder or deepens the eating disorder. Did you experience anything as you went through different transitions in your life where you noticed maybe, or you can think back now that the eating disorder changed at those inflection times?
1: Yes. And it's funny, when I was in treatment, one of my assignments was, how did my eating disorder show up during transitions? And that's when it showed up, you know, like, I remember, you know, going to France and then going to graduate school. And boy, it was loud and it was big. And I remember thinking back then, like, no one really wanted to be around me, but I also didn't want to be around them because I wanted to eat eat in secret. You know, and I want, i didn't want anyone to look at my food and all that stuff. And I, everything was perfectly measured out as far as like exercise and all of my activities and everything. And I mean, it was so routine, like, uh, uh, yeah, it was just so routine. But so that was an, a transition. I remember going through my divorce from my children's dad. You know, and that was another time I, you know, and I had a a pretty traumatic event when I was in graduate school and I had a stalker and that too, like led me into like this kind of freeze frame of, you know, that was going to protect me. Once again, it was like that pseudo protection, you know, and then just looking back, getting remarried, going through, you know, going through another traumatic event with one of my children who fell into drugs and alcohol isn't it funny? Like that was, that was my safety. Like that was my, I just fell back on that. That was always like, just stop eating and everything will be okay. And it wasn't, you know,
0: I had a theory that that didn't fix everything. It
1: didn't fix everything. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I, I went through a pretty bad medical situation almost, you know, a year and a half ago and I stopped eating. I say it lightly, but Mm -hmm. it's pretty heavy. It
0: is. It is heavy. And it it really speaks to the, I think the way in which we're not as a society good at asking those questions, like this is a big transition time. And during transition times, people struggle with lots of things. And actually people struggle with lots of things much of the time, but transitions we know are particularly difficult. How are you doing? Is there anything difficult for you in your relationship with yourself. Some people struggle with eating. Some people struggle with coping. Some people struggle with sleeping. We're just not very good at asking those kinds of questions as a society. We're a little better at saying, you know, how are you doing? Or having medical perspectives sort of scratch maybe only the surface. And if you don't go very far, you won't ask the right questions. I get to the right information. So it strikes me that that under the radar Uh, way you have of describing it is unfortunately a bit of how our society is structured. Yeah. Yeah. How about you mentioned you had a, a medical issue recently, but how about the rest of your experience over the last few decades? Have you had medical issues related to the eating disorder or medical issues that have impacted the eating disorder or your relationship with your body or food? Tell us a little bit about that interplay between your sort of the rest of your health and the eating disorder, not like those two things can be separated, but let's sort of they (laughs) ebb and flow together. Tell us a bit about that.
1: You know, the only thing or the biggest thing that stands out for me is my GI, you know, just having, having just the constipation. And I think that was like the biggest thing that maybe started me into this, you know, this pattern of, eating or not eating, I think that was the biggest problem. And that's what ended up being the biggest problem. The things that I remember the most, especially like when I went to France is, um, and, and coming back after that is, you know, losing my hair. That was like, that was a really big thing, but I didn't think that much of it. I thought, Oh, it was just a stressful time. And, you know, and I have a lot of hair, so it just, I still have hair, but I think that was a big deal. I think the the health issues, those were the things that prompted me to get help. Which is funny because after, you know, 30 years of of restricting and, and doing all these things. So I think I it's that under the radar thing. I think I was good and kind of gliding, but things started getting funny in my 40s, especially with my my GI and I thought, oh, it's no big deal. It's probably just Hormones, perimenopause, all that stuff. I started having hormonal issues too. You know, things like with my my period and all that. So, who knows? Who knows if that was the eating disorder? Who knows if it was hormones? But I think more than anything, it was just the GI, and and that was that became. I was I became very hyper focused on my bowels and all of that. So, and it's funny to even talk about it because I used to never talk about it. You know, it was so embarrassing. And now it's like, oh, that's just part of it, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it is. It's interesting how that those, the impacts, be they eating disorder, or other impacts on our health make us uh, comfortable talking about some things, but not others, despite the fact that the others are so important. So I really appreciate you talking about it with us. I'm also curious about when you, and I'm going to make some assumptions here, so please correct sure. me if I'm sure. not. I'm, I'm one of my assumptions is that you maybe sought some medical support for your GI issues, and I'm curious if, if that's true, did the medical personnel you interacted with ask you anything about the eating disorder at all? Like, did they, did they get anywhere close to knowing there's a lot more going on here than they might have been thinking?
1: no and that's what's so crazy is i i had a hysterectomy and that was that was kind of the big surgery that was like the catalyst to all my everything everything was heightened everything was exacerbated everything just stopped working and i had what's called ileus which is like a lazy bowel and so they put me on liquids you know they put me on bowel rest and then I was like, yeah, I'm just not going to eat because then it hurts to eat. So why not just not eat? And hey, huh? And I think that was the ultimate, that was the ultimate, like that triggered and brought my eating disorder to the front more than ever, like even more than back in my twenties. And so when I was in the hospital, you know, then I went to see a, you know, a gastroenterologist and, You know, they put me on like, you know, some of those prescription drugs to help with constipation. And, and I remember thinking, this just isn't right. This just isn't right. Like, and then they would put me on more things and no one ever said anything. Like, are you okay? And maybe you need to cut out this food and cut out this food. And my eating disorder was like, yes, awesome. You know, and I can just eat this and eat that. And that's perfect. Like, that's perfect. That's my pattern but no one said anything. I was in the hospital two two times after the hysterectomy. And then I had an, another emergency abdominal surgery in the middle of the night. So it, it was, and nothing was said then either. You know, the only time anyone said anything was from one friend of mine who was a mentor in her seventies, a psychologist she wasn't my psychologist and she said to me rebecca if you go through another another thing like this i don't think you're going to make it and i remember thinking what i'm fine i'm fine i just need to you know decrease the foods i'm eating and just eat foods that are white and you know and that you know that was when i was like wow yeah like for her to say that is huge. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah. And and what a a beautiful and and really heartfelt and painful illustration of the all too often we hear they're like, no, I'm fine. Like fine might be the word that somebody with an eating disorder says the most frequently in, in all of the vocabulary. Um, I'm fine.
1: Yes. Yes. Not so fine. No. And I remember even telling my husband, like I was like, I need help, but I didn't know what kind of help I needed. And I remember feeling like I was having like a nervous breakdown, but I was like, but I was fine, you know? And it was so weird. Cause it was like, I was so not used to listening to that part of me. And I remember saying to a friend, I just want to go somewhere where someone tells me what to do. They tell me what to eat. They tell me when to sleep. They tell me if I'm okay. They take my vitals. Not knowing, not knowing that like, that's residential treatment, you know, and, you know, and it was just like, I just want someone to take care of me because I can't do it anymore. Like I can't take care of myself. Yeah. And that's really scary. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. It takes so much courage to even speak to somebody, to your husband, to a friend, to somebody else to say, I don't, I don't think I'm okay. And I'm not sure why, but I'm, I don't think I'm okay, but I'm fine. But that's- right.
1: Right. <laughs> right. And I have jokes with my friends out here where I'm like, you know, let's go to dinner. And they're like, okay, where do you want to go? And and we joke about, well, I'm I'm allergic. I'm not really, but I'm allergic to shrimp, but I'll, I'll eat it. It'll be okay. I'll just take my EpiPen, but it'll be okay. It'll be fine. You know, but I'll be fine. You know, and it's, it's so funny. I'll do that. We're fine. Yeah.
0: That is so funny. So how, how did you end up talking more about it? How did you get to that decision to reach out and take that really big step to say I need help how how did that go tell us a little bit about that
1: I ended up some so that same friend she recommended that I call a certain place and I got three names of treatment facilities and then the name that she gave me and I ended up calling these places and I was like I think I think I have a problem but I don't know if I do and they're like okay well why don't we just do an intake and so I did one intake and I ended up, do, you know, spending like two hours on the phone with them and they're like, yeah, you need help. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, and then I did another intake. Yeah, you need help. You probably should go to residential. And it was, what was interesting is all the questions they asked me, I answered yes to all of them. And those were like, those were qualified, those are qualifying answers of like, you need help. And so that was last February. And by the fourth call, it was like, okay. So that's when I told my husband, I think I have an eating disorder. And he's like, oh, I think you're fine. I see you eat, you know. And then I knew I had some trips scheduled. And so I was like, you know, I just think, I don't think it's good timing. I think I'm fine. And then I went on the trips and I, and that's when I ended up going into the hospital last April. And that's when I knew I needed to get help. So I, of the four places, three of them were really terrible about getting back to me. And I hate to say that, but they were, and that discouraged me because I was like, well, maybe that's just a sign that I don't need any help. And then I, someone said to me, why don't you just go see like an eating disorder specialist? And I went to see her and she said, she said, you know, if you go into treatment, they're just gonna, it's just really all about eating. You know, if you want, we can just have sessions and eat together. And I remember thinking, okay, I I could do that, but it still didn't feel right. And so of, of the four places I'd called, One of them was so attentive. They were so attentive. And they would text me and they would call me and they would say, you know, what can we do to help you? And when I called them back, they did another, they updated my intake. And then they got me in. It took me about three weeks, though, because they were like, we don't have a spot. And they were like, maybe we can just get you started in like a virtual PHP program. But then they said, actually, we want to have eyes on you. So they said 7 days a week 7 hours a day. And I and my and every, we were my husband and I were like, "Wait, that's a lot." Oh my gosh. And then I just said, "Well, I guess I could try it." I guess I could just try it. And so that same treatment program, the person that was doing my intake, she's like, "Why don't you call me right before you leave your house?" why don't you call me when you pull into the parking lot? Gosh, it makes me me want to cry because they were so attentive. Call us when you get to the parking lot and I'll make sure someone meets you at the door. And they did, you know, and so I did the PHP for three weeks and you guys, I had no idea what to expect because I didn't know it was, I didn't know I was going to have to like go in and eat. I didn't know that was part of it. And so those first few days, there was this, I just didn't know, I did not know anything about what it was going to be like. And so I remember having to sit down and eat meals. And there was this whole thing around completion and supplementing and all that. And ah, it was really hard. And I remember like the first few nights I woke up like in the middle of the night when, or I came home one night from treatment. And I think I was going from like 12 to seven each day. And I just walked in and just started crying and with my husband and I was like, I just, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. And I can't eat all this. I can't eat all this food. And, but man, I was, I, and I have such like a please you type personality where I was like, I'll do whatever. But then after about three weeks, they pulled me aside and they just said, you need more support. You need more structure, you know, and I I was eating, but I, I don't think I was making progress. And so they said, we think that you need to go to a residential for about six to eight weeks. And I remember thinking, no way, there is no way I'm going to go and do that. Cause how am I going to do my little rituals and all my things and, you know, and how do I do that? And I remember my husband saying, well, what else, what else is there, Rebecca? Like, you don't, you don't have a life. Like, you don't do anything. You don't... Do you want to continue to live like this? He's like, we don't have a life. We don't... We don't... Like, I'm taking care of you. You know, I'm taking you to the hospital. And I'm, you know... And um. so I uh, took a red eye to Alabama. And I checked myself in. And I... We went to see... <laughs> Before my husband dropped me off at the airport, we went to see that new Top Gun movie. I have no idea what it's about. Like, I remember just sitting in the movie, just going, uh-huh, like, and I knew I was going to get on a plane like three hours later. And so, yeah, I took an Uber from the airport to the treatment facility. And my, I had a safe word with my husband, which is Marilyn, which is the name of our cat, who is like so needy and always by my side and always meowing at the door. And I said, if I text you, Marilyn, I want you to come get me. And on I got there on a Thursday and on Saturday, I was like, I'm getting ready to text you the safe word. And a friend, well, an an acquaintance in my program here in LA, in the PHP program, she had Just launched before I went to Alabama. And I texted her and I said, I can't do this. I have to leave. And she's like, Stay, period. And she, of all the people that I met, was the one that her final parting words to all of us were, Just stick to your food plan. Just stick to your meal plan. And I remember thinking, What? That's crazy. That's too simple. No way. But I stayed, and I ate, I completed my meals, and I met the most beautiful people on this earth, and it was the most meaningful experience, probably aside from having my children, the most meaningful experience I think I've ever had was being in Alabama and then coming back and seeing people who had sent me there in the first place or who suggested I go. And it was magical. I mean, what a crazy word to use, but it was magical. And um, ooh, yeah, <laughs> that's my
0: experience. It's beautiful. Rebecca, thank you for sharing. and Thank you for that. That was a gift of of sharing. It's so meaningful to people to hear other people's experiences and your description is is so rich and full of of the beauty of a really hard thing. It's really hard to yeah, just stick to your meal plan. And and I and <laughs> in my if I'm if I'm a dietitian by training and my warm little dietitian heart is like, yes, stick to it. <laughs> it's so yeah. hard. And it's so important. And I love that your friend said stay. Like that is so valuable and so so saying so much with one little word that's so true, true.
1: Yeah. yeah yeah and I remember just thinking like I have to surrender because I am no, like I kept thinking I knew what's best I know what I need to eat I know how much I need to exercise but then I just had to surrender like literally just take me and do I, I will do what you tell me to do and I can always go back, you know. I can always, I can always go back to what I was doing. But why don't I just give it a whirl? And yeah, yeah,
0: it is. It's, it's. I think that's a relieving, uh, coping strategy, right? To say like, I'm, I'm just gonna try it, and and I can go back, and and I think a lot of people experience that feeling of like, well, I'll try it, but, but I have that sort of safety, again, that pseudo safety you talked about, that if this doesn't work, the eating disorder will hang out and be happy to tell us that we can come back. And so yes. that is, uh, in many ways, it's a way to sort of use the tenacity and the persistence of the eating disorder to your benefit instead of your detriment to say like, okay, if it's so persistent in hanging out, maybe I could be persistent in just trying to do it a different way and see what Yeah, happens and
1: see yeah what it's it. almost like using like you're saying, like using that same persistence to get out of it that I used to stay in it. Yeah, like I got it, you know, kind of like Marilyn at the door. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I saw so many people when they say like no no I got it, I got it. I I want to do this myself. Right? How many people have we have said that? I want to do this myself. First had somebody in an eating disorder treatment program or not in a program, really struggling with an eating disorder saying, I got this, I, I'm, I'm going to do it myself. I always say, I'm so glad that you want to do this yourself because we are all here to help you. The raw truth is that you have to do the work. And so I'm so glad you were going to bring that like gumption and persistence to the work. Because you're right. You are going to do this and really coming alongside that because it can be a really powerful force for good to really uh, have people know that they can do it and have that self-efficacy and that just internal sort of shining that light towards something that will be really will actually help them to be fine instead of uh, also fine. <laughs> yeah uh, what's needed you along the way like we know that eating sort of recovery isn't you know it's not linear it's not super smooth sailing that we need lots of support through the process what's been motivating and supportive for you along the way.
1: I think when I first started feeling that freedom mm-hmm. and that joy, when when I was in when I was in Alabama and I was like, I'm gonna go home, you know, I'm, I'm done. You know, Maryland was like at the tip of my tongue, on the tip of my tongue. What stopped me was I didn't want to go home because I wasn't going home to anything. I was going home to my husband, but I was going back home to the darkness. So when I think about then and now I that's what keeps me going is also and also how I feel today and how I felt yesterday and knowing that there's this rebirth this is the Rebecca that I know is in was inside of there all along and now she's big and the eating disorder is small. In fact the eating disorder doesn't even live here anymore every now and then it knocks at the door but i'm like no one's home or come in and have some tea but you got to leave after the tea i was sharing in a support group last night like everything's good my body is functioning and because i'm eating you know and and when the when when something happens where i feel like oh man I'm doing the body image stuff, or I'm worried about the size that I'm now wearing, or whatever. It's like, okay, so what? But I also I will reach out to people because I do have, I do have a beautiful support group. I I or a support network. I have people in my life that know what I went through because I've told them like, I need help, which was so hard, and and I was ashamed at first, but I'm not anymore. So I think knowing I'm not alone, and then just a support network, but but I feel good. And I like eating, you know, and I do remember my Alex's words, you know, I remember that just just eat. So I think if I have those feelings, my baseline and my fallback and my foundation is, have you eaten? Have you recorded it? You know, when's your next appointment with your, you know, your ED people, your treatment team. So all of that, you know, I'm so proud of my recovery and I'm so proud of where I am. And I think that keeps me going too. Absolutely. You
0: have so much to be proud of. It's really, really beautiful. Do you have a sense of, you know, recovery is such an amazing gift and experience and it doesn't make like life perfect stuff happens and life stuff happens that we have to manage. How do you continue to navigate challenges as they come? Because challenges that aren't necessarily related to the eating disorder, just life challenges. But in the midst of an eating disorder, sometimes the eating disorder promises to help you you know,
1: manage those challenges. How do you do
0: that now? What are your coping skills or your strategies for just managing what life throws at us?
1: One of the things that helps me manage challenges is, is being able to say it out loud, to be able to say, I'm struggling. I'm having a really hard time. Will you just listen? The other thing is knowing that I'm right where I'm supposed to be because being 55, when I look back at my life, I realize it all kind of happened the way that it was supposed to. And I know that whatever happens now, it's all a learning experience. It's all a teaching experience. And and I just, you know, it's kind of like, light, like accepting life on life's terms. That to me really helps me if I just know it's going to be okay. You got to walk through it. You've got support. It's going to be hard. But you'll be okay on the other side because this is the way it's supposed to be.
0: So when you think about the whole process, and this might be hard to put it into one answer, but when you think about the process, what surprised you or surprises you the most about recovery?
1: Probably the freedom, the freedom and the joy. That has been huge. There are no there aren't any shackles. There are no more shackles. You know, I'm not bound anymore and to to look back and realize for so many years i had those shackles and knowing that freedom is now possible i think it's that i have sisters out there in the world who are my friends who are still struggling and i so badly want them to feel the freedom but i can't do it for them so i guess i guess that would be what what surprised me the most
0: that makes sense. Turns out there's a lot more than fine, isn't there?
1: <laughs> <laughs> a lot more than fine. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So to to
0: close us out on, I mean, we could talk all day that your, the way you present your story and sort of illustrate the depth of how it feels is so beautiful. And we're so grateful for your sharing that story with us. We often have people say, or maybe think as they're listening to somebody else's recovery story, like, that's like so amazing. Rebecca, I'm so glad that happened for you. I, I just can't see that happening for me. I just, that's never, never going to be possible for me. Recovery is just not possible for me. What would you say to that person?
1: Oh, I would say, I get it. I absolutely get it. I think what I would do is I would share. I mean, I just shared my story, but. I would encourage that person to try to surrender. Try to surrender. Just try it. Try to trust the people that are wanting to help you. Lean on them. Use their trust for a little bit until you can trust yourself. You know, I think that was really big for me. I think recovery is possible.
0: Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing your story for the light you're bringing to the world we're so excited to read your book and it's It's just so excited to hear more from you thank you for today
1: yeah thanks you guys so much you're welcome if you enjoyed today's
0: episode of piecemeal please subscribe rate or leave a review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and VeritasCollaborative.com, or search emily program and veritas collaborative on social media Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.